0: Okay, we're going to be starting a new book of the Bible. It's uh, going to take us the next 28 weeks. We're going to be in this book, and that book is Ephesians. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys have read the book of Ephesians, but it's personally one of my favorites. It's one of the most influential and transformative letters in the entire Bible. If you don't immediately, when I say Ephesians, if themes and verses from that book don't come to mind, you definitely need to be studying this book a lot more. Uh, some people call this letter mini-Romans because it deals with a lot of the same things that the book of Romans deals with. And it's got uh, it's got more than the book of Romans. It stresses the sovereignty of God in salvation, uh, the historical salvation plan of God, rather than dealing with the local context. Paul's going to deal a lot more with the universal church. So if you remember my first talk from Essentials, we talked about the local church versus the universal church. The book of Ephesians pretty much almost entirely speaks of the universal church. And uh, we get lifted up from sin to the unbelievable heights of relationship with God in this book. And in this book, I hope, and my hope and prayer is that it will transform you, it will bring you to a deeper and a more true understanding of God, and that you will understand the gospel in such a more deep and fulfilling way. And we find this amazing truth in the book of Ephesians is that God is lavish. He loves to be generous with His resources. He loves to give so great is His mercy that if you don't feel sort of scandalized by how giving God is and how much we don't deserve it, then you've got to look at it more. Or you've got to deal with your own sin more if you feel like you deserve the kind of things that we're going to be reading about in Ephesians. And this isn't true of humans. We're not generous like God. We're pretty stingy, actually, most of the time. Most humans are rather stingy. We are not generous. There was this guy, his name was Morgan Jones, and he was, a, he was a Christian. He was actually a vicar in Blueberry, England, and he was renowned as one of the most stingy men in all of England, even though he worked in ministry. And he was so stingy that he didn't want to buy his own clothes, so he would roam the countryside looking for scarecrows so he could go and nick the clothes off the scarecrows. Uh, he would time all of his pastoral visits at lunchtime and dinner hoping that they would invite him in for a meal which, you know, partly I'm uh, <laughs> I line up a little bit with that as well. <laughs> and uh, He was uh, so fastidious and shrewd with his money uh, that he saved about 18,000 pounds in the 1700s, which is equivalent to well over a million dollars now. And all that money He saved, couldn't take it with him when he died. Uh, There was another fascinating story of this lady, Hetty Green, she's known as the witch of Wall Street. Uh, She lived in New York and she inherited uh, $7.5 million in 1864, which is a crazy amount of money for that time. And it was because she was part of a whaling family, a whole bunch of them died, she got a whole bunch of the money, but she was really stingy. She wore the same black dress every single day. which is where she got the nickname, the Witch of Wall Street. Uh, she would only eat cold porridge because she, it would cost too much money to heat the porridge up. She was super, super stingy. Her son got a leg injury and she didn't want to take him to the doctor because that, you know, that cost money, taking your son to the doctor. And she put it off so much and he ended up getting an infection in it. And when she finally realized, oh, we probably need to see a doctor, she shopped around for the cheapest doctor we can find. she could find. By the time she got the doctor in, they had to amputate his leg. And when she died, she was worth around $200 million in 1916, which, oh, I don't know what that would be now, but that, that was intense. And she went down as the wealthiest woman in the world, and no one knew it until they counted up everything she had when she died. And to the the letter of uh, Ephesians, in a way, it's kind of written to Christians that are like that. How can that be the case? Like, what kind of Christian is like this? What kind of Christian is stingy like those guys? Well, it's not that the Ephesians were stingy. It's that they had no idea how rich they were in Christ. They had no idea how to use their resources that they had in Christ. And so were wealthy beyond belief, but had no idea they had that money they didn't know that they, you know, like Hedy Green. she had so much money, she didn't know how to use her resources, and her son lost his leg. But the Christian who doesn't realize how to wisely use their resources and to be generous with what God gives them, spiritually I'm speaking, not, not materially, um, that's the kind of Christians that Paul is writing to. And so the letter of Ephesians touches on these things. We're basically going to be dealing with the first couple of verses but I'm going to do an overview of the entire book. So as we delve in, we've got a lot of the context in mind. We know what's going on. Uh, but for example, in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it speaks of the riches of God's grace. If you want to skip to three, chapter 3, 8, talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Three sixteen, it speaks about the riches of his glory. Because in Christ, the riches are unsearchable. The wealth you can find in Jesus is never-ending. And God, in this letter, as we're going through it over the next 28 weeks, is going to be unleashing all the riches you have on Christ on you. This entire series. So come hungry, come expecting, come with empty wallets ready for Christ to give you some money. Spiritually, I'm speaking. Um, And the main thing that we get is the riches of grace. Now, you might not feel rich with grace. In fact, some of you guys may struggle with all sorts of sins. And because you struggle with sins, man, it's really hard to get your head around grace because you feel so unworthy, you feel so unloved, because you feel like, man, I'm really not doing well. And yet, the grace that's on offer in Ephesians is lavish beyond your wildest imaginations. It covers over all sorts of sins. And... Just for the sake of it, grace, I don't want to assume that we all know what grace means, but grace is God's unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor. The key thing is you don't deserve grace. Grace is given to you anyway. And all these riches poured out on us so lavishly is simply by this grace, so undeserved, so unmerited, you did nothing, not even a single thing, not even an ounce to earn this. You couldn't earn it. And so everything in this letter we don't deserve that we're going to read. it's good to keep that in mind. In fact, the Apostle Paul will use the word grace 12 times in such a short letter. Glory 8 times. Inheritance 4 times. He'll talk about riches 5 times. Fullness and filled will show up 7 times. And the key to everything is that because we are in Christ, that key term in Christ, that all the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of His glory and His grace is ours, but you've got to be in Christ. And that word, in Christ, we're going to read almost every week, because that term shows up just like throughout every every verse. So let's start verse uh, 1 to 2. You're going to see the first in Christ showing up. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ephesians uh, is likely a circular letter, although it's it's uh, given to the church in Ephesus. Its intent was to be spread out among the churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor. It's in modern day Turkey. We'll chuck a map up for you guys to see. you know. So it's got a bunch of the old, um, it's got a bunch of uh, ancient cities mixed in with the uh, modern names. So Turkey wasn't around back then, but Ephesus was right there near Greece. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It was about the third or 4th we I'm not sure, largest city in the ancient world. It had about a quarter of a million people living in it, which at that time was amazing. Uh... By ancient standards, it was a massive metropolitan city. There was a very large Jewish presence. About 25,000 Jews lived there, which is quite impressive. You've got to imagine that there are synagogues in Ephesus full of these Jewish people. It's about 25,000. That's a big church. That's a, a synagogue at the time. That's a big gathering of believers. And Paul spent all his time in that synagogue sharing Jesus with those Jewish people. And so this wasn't a small operation. The church in Ephesus... Well, that was a big city. That church was likely at its height, one of the biggest churches in the ancient world. And this church was full of Gentiles and Jews. It's probably had one of the highest populations of Jewish Christians outside of Israel, mixed in with a whole bunch of pagan, Gentile, Greek-speaking people. And in this letter, it describes the church. The riches uh, I talked about: riches, hope, mystery the power of the gospel, a message of salvation by grace and not by works. And that's the key thing. It's grace and not by the works of the law. And it results in a message of reconciliation between God and people and reconciliation between people groups, the Gentiles and the Jews. It Gives us a new way to live in the world. Gives you a new way to live in your marriage, in your family and in your household. So salvation by grace, this radical concept, both then it's still radical today, just as radical now, produces a quality of life, and it reconciles groups who were historically enemies, and it's still doing that today. Still doing that today, and so it tells us where the church should be headed, and how God has given us all the resources we need to get there. All right, it's going to be hopefully not too much of a lecture this sermon. Uh, But there's a little bit of content, we'll try and move through it. So Ephesians 4.17, Paul exhorts us to no longer live as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they are alienated from the life of God. The key thing is, is we have a different quality of existence as Christians. There needs to be something different about you. You've got to be tasty. You've got to have some salt to you. You've got to have something different about you to the rest of the world. Because Paul's saying... Don't live like the rest of the world. They're the ones that are alienated from God. We don't want to be like them. We want to be different. We have a different quality of existence. And the main challenges that you're going to face in this world, the book of Ephesians says, are also spiritual. The main challenges are spiritual. In the city of Ephesus, it was considered your civic duty to worship the gods and honor the emperor of Rome as a god. Man, that's tough, isn't it? Imagine if, going to work, you were expected to honour, you know, the emperor, and you had to pay homage to the gods. That's a bit of a trouble for Christians, isn't it? We worship one god, same for the Jews. It created a lot of tension between the Christians and the people of the city. And uh, this city uh, had the biggest structure in the ancient world. It was the Temple of Artemis. I didn't check it up? It's that size of a soccer field. This thing was enormous. Uh, It was, as I said, the biggest city at that time, uh, sorry, the biggest building at that time. It was dedicated to the goddess Artemis, or if you're a Roman, you would call her Diana. And she was known as the Queen of Heaven. And she was the one who controlled the underworld. And its prestige as a city, because of this enormous structure, people would come to see it. And back then, it was enormous. I don't know if any of you guys have been to Ephesus, but part of it's still standing. It's an enormous structure and you've got Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. These guys had gone forward and brought the gospel to Ephesus. I don't know if you remember those guys in the book of Acts. And this church has begun to grow. And when Paul shows up, I think that was a small number, maybe like 12 people were part of this church. Small church. That's smaller than us right now. And Paul oversees the growth and expansion of this church in the city. And it exploded. The growth in the church absolutely just took off. And in Acts uh, 19, speaks of Paul having such influence over the city uh, that everyone heard of the name of Jesus. And so whenever you hear people say, oh, we want to make Jesus' name famous... A lot of it comes from that section of Acts. We want everyone to know the name of Jesus. We want everyone to hear about it. We want everyone to come and confront the message of the gospel. And the city was full of uh, magicians and sorcerers and uh, witches. It was famous for being a city of magic. It was actually uh, part of the, the economy of this city. And hundreds of these former magicians became Christians. So much so that they gathered all their spell books and they burnt them. It talks about it in the book of Acts. And it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a crazy amount of money because back then, I mean, I tried to estimate it in today's money. I'm probably like way off, but it's somewhere around $7 million. All these guys willingly destroyed millions of dollars of books because Jesus had changed their lives. And so the church of Ephesus, man, that church was a place where people loved God. And they loved him more than their careers, more than their life, more than their money. And they sacrificed for Jesus. Demons were being cast out. Even some Jews heard about Jesus being able to, the name of Jesus being able to cast out demons. They thought they'd give it a go. And so they came out and they're like, in the name of Jesus, who this Paul guy talks about, we want these demons to come out. The demons are like, who are you guys? We know Jesus, we know Paul, we have no idea who you guys are. And then they jumped on them and beat them up and then apparently in order to get out they had to like slip out of their robes and run down the street naked. It's pretty humiliating and the whole city heard of it that these Jewish exorcists couldn't cast out any demons but Jesus was powerful and all the dark forces were getting cast out so much so that everyone stopped worshipping the other gods. Well, not everyone but a huge portion. There was a guy named Demetrius He was a silversmith. His entire job was to make these silver shrines of Artemis. Uh, I thought about putting a picture of Artemis up, but I thought against it. You'll see why. This was not an attractive goddess. You normally think of goddesses as, like, very attractive. Not this one. She's short, quite fat, and has hundreds of breasts all over her. She was the goddess of fertility. You understand why I didn't want to put that picture up. Um, But this guy made those statues. He made all the statues of all this short, fat little goddess with all of these boobs around her. That was the statue that he made. And he was going out of business. Because no one wanted to buy them anymore because they were worshipping Jesus. They weren't worshipping Artemis. And it created this tense situation where the whole city rioted. And they wanted blood. They wanted to kill Paul. And Paul had to get out of there. He got kicked out of the city. And that's the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry at that point in Ephesus. But man, that city was getting turned upside down by the gospel. That church was exploding. People were walking away from the former things that they had. And they loved Jesus. But we're going to find out later, not in my sermon, but later as we go through the the book of Ephesians. uh, Jesus makes reference to them in Revelation. And they were going strong for ages. But he says, you've lost your first love. And I'm going to remove your lay of if you do not return. Fascinating. But this church, so full of the spirit, so full of love for Jesus, so transformative in the way that people's lives were just so utterly changed. And yet, that church, 200 years later, will cease to exist. But we're not in the sad days of the church ceasing to exist. The book of Ephesians is written to a church that's alive with the Spirit. And so we're going to take as much as we can from the book of Ephesians, but we don't want Ephesians to be the end of our church. We're going to take the things they did, the good, but we're going to leave the bad behind. And so in Ephesians 6.12, Paul will go on to say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul writes that to Ephesians because they were at war with the dark spiritual forces in Ephesus. Because that church was full of dark magic, it was full of demons, it was full of pagan worship. And that's why Paul writes these things to them. But it's not to say that only those things were going on in uh, Ephesus. But in fact, this is a universal thing. And just as much as dark spiritual forces were active in the city of Ephesus, so are they here in Christ. Their goals are different. They're not trying to get us to worship a little short, fat fertility goddess. But man, they're trying to get us to worship self. They're trying to get us to walk away from Jesus. They don't want anyone to hear about Jesus. And so remember that our church is not necessarily wrestling against the flesh and blood we see around us, the Brinkstonites that we see, and the people that live in Huntley, but against spiritual forces. And they would love to tear this church apart, trust me. That would, that would be like their best dream is having uh, our church fall apart uh, in this area. So that's the background of this letter. So let's dive in. Uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul starts by mentioning that he is an apostle. His apostleship is front and center, and I just want to start by talking about what apostle means, because not everyone knows what it means. We kind of before I was a Christian and probably maybe a year into me being a Christian, I just thought it meant like super holy Christian guy. That's what I thought, but that's not what it actually means. It's not a term we use anymore, but in the Greek, it means a commissioned and authorised messenger. A commissioned and authorised messenger. That means that anyone who is an apostle in the Christian church is someone who was commissioned as a messenger and authorised by Jesus himself. Jesus himself sent them out, And that's why Paul says that he's an apostle by the will of God. He's not his own apostle. He doesn't decide that he's going to send this message around because it's his message. He knows that it's by the will of God. And this resurrected Jesus that came in turned this chief persecutor of the church completely around. This guy used to go around rounding up Christians and throwing them in jail where they would be killed. This guy was a murderer. And now he's the premier theologian and church planter the early church what a change in this man it's one of the most prolific and experienced messages had probably one of the most influential ministry of all the disciples and all the apostles and paul more than any of them was so aware that he had done nothing to deserve it in fact he'd done everything he possibly could to deserve the opposite of it didn't he I think killing Christians is pretty high on God's not liking you list, right? If You want God to not be pleased with the things you're doing? Go around round up Christians and kill them. And yet God showed mercy to Paul, which early in the church, man, that was tough for the church to swallow. Imagine if he killed your brother or your sister or your mother or your father and, and God had mercy on him and caused you as well to have mercy on him. Wow. Scandal of grace right there. Grace is scandalous. And we forget how scandalous it is. And so Paul, his ministry, chalks it up all to the divine and sovereign will of God. He knows that salvation is not earned, but is received by faith as a gift. And his ministry was received by faith as a gift. Do you remember his conversion in Acts chapter 9? I'm sure you guys know it rather well. Some of you guys... Might not, so I'm just going to talk about it again. Uh, Before he was a Christian, Paul was called Saul. He had a different name. His name was Saul. And he was traveling to a city called Damascus because he heard that there were a bunch of Christians there. And he went there with the goal of rounding them up and basically putting them to death. And on the way, he's heading there. a uh, A light blinds him and a voice starts speaking to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul has no idea who's speaking to him, and so he says, who are you, Lord? And in that moment, Jesus reveals himself to Saul and forever changes his life. He says, I am Jesus, who you were persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And Saul had to go in and speak to this Christian guy, Ananias. This guy didn't want to heal Paul of his blindness. He didn't want Paul to be a Christian because he'd been killing Christians. But this is what Jesus says to Ananias. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And this guy, he rounded up Christians. God was like, no, his story is different now. He's going to speak to the Gentiles about me. He's going to speak to kings about me. And later it says, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. I don't know if I want... I mean, I prefer the first bit to the second bit if Jesus was going to say that to me. Like, oh, I'll bring, you, I'll bring a whole bunch of Gentiles to faith. I'd be like, sweet, that's awesome. And then I'll show you how much you have to suffer. I'll be like, oh, I didn't know about that one. But man, Paul did suffer. But Paul, through his suffering, can write of all the riches in Jesus. Paul, through his suffering, knows how worthwhile Jesus is. And that's why how we can see just the riches that we find in Jesus The book of Ephesians, Philippians, like name it, anything Paul writes, at the forefront of his mind is the beauty and the preciousness of Jesus. But he's not alone. He had a team around him. He traveled with Barnabas, he traveled with Silas, he even traveled with Mark and Luke. You guys remember those guys? They wrote the Gospels. Paul always had a team around him. And that's despite the fact that he is an apostle. There is no such thing as a one-man team in the kingdom of God. Even the apostles had people supporting them, encouraging them, ministering alongside them. So if you guys are in any ministry context, can I encourage you, don't do it alone. You don't have to do it alone. God gives you the body. God gave Paul the body to walk alongside him, to help him. We're not in this as a one-man team. We're in this together. So he sends this letter, as he says to the saints that are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we hear the word saints, it will bring up a whole different amount of uh, imagery. If you're a Roman Catholic, there's this long canonization process after you die, and if you're found worthy, you get called a saint. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things you have to do, but the two main things you have to do is perform two miracles. And the way that happens is people pray to you, and you can heal someone after you die. That's the way that Roman Catholics give sainthood to people. And so you have got to do these two miracles. And with Mary McPhillip, you know, Catholic Australians really wanted her to become a saint. So they started praying to her for miracles until they managed to get two miracles. And I think they made her a saint. I don't actually know. Um, but that's the view of Roman Catholics. That's what they think saints are. But that's a bit strange because Paul's not writing to dead people who have performed miracles after they died, is he? Bit of an awkward uh, interpretation of the word saint. Uh, Anglicans, they'll grant sainthood when a person has been recognized as having lived a holy life and been an exemplar and model for other Christians. But is that what's going on here? Is Paul just writing to a group, a small group of elite Christians in the city of Ephesus? I don't think these definitions, the Anglican or the Roman Catholic, are found anywhere in the Bible. Saint means holy one. That's what the word means. And every time it's used, it's in reference to Christians in a church. Which means that if you believe in Jesus, you are a saint. That's a weird thing to think about. If you're a Christian here, no matter how messed up, no matter how broken you are, if you believe in Jesus, you are a saint. Is that weird to think about of yourself? I don't know, I find it a little bit weird to get it. So, i okay. do indoctrinated, inculturated in terms of saint being these super holy people. But no, you are a saint if you are a Christian. You don't have to perform miracles after you die. You have to believe in Jesus. It's a people set apart by God to do the work of God. It's God's initiative. It's not by their good deeds or works. If your good deeds don't not give you saintly, it's not what you do that makes you a saint. It's who you believe in. And if you are a saint, Paul says, you are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here we go, that, fir- that phrase, in Christ, shows up for the first time. We only had to read one verse. What does that mean? Well, firstly, it means that if you're faithful in Christ Jesus, you have faith in Jesus. Uh, both one who trusts in Jesus, but also one who responded out of that trust in Jesus, It means that you once had faith in him, but you continue to have faith in him. It doesn't mean that you uh, had faith at one point and then you walked away. It means that you continuously are faithful, you're continuously believing, you're continuously trusting, and you live in the light of that initiating trust. And the point is this. Faith is not just a belief, but a way of life. You could have said those who had faith in Christ Jesus, but it's those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And only the blood of Jesus poured out for us is going to be enough to give us the riches that are promised in this letter. That's why he says in Christ Jesus. Having faith in Jesus is not a moment of time, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of living, it's a way of life. And then he goes on verse 2, grace to you peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to be wishing on the church of Ephesus something that he recognises here only God can provide. Grace and peace come alone through God, and grace is the main point of the letter. It's because of grace that you get the spiritual riches that we find in this letter. It's because of grace. That we have forgiveness and mercy. And it's because of grace that you have peace with God. And peace with your fellow humans. And it is a gift, something which God pours out lavishly, which none of us deserve. None of us deserve this. And if God's grace has entered your life, peace has come into your life. If God's grace has entered in your life, you have both peace with God the Father and God the Son. And that's why uh, Paul mentions uh, God the Father, and God the Son, because it ties this together. And this is all written, to begin the church off on the right foot, because God. Uh, so Paul knows that God has made him rich in Christ, and he, uh, he was one who constantly faced death. Remember that? He's poor. In fact, it's most likely, we don't know, but it's most likely he's writing this from prison. It's one of the last letters he probably wrote depends how you date this letter but he remembers how God through the riches of his grace and his mercy made him an apostle and he's reminding the Ephesian church, it's the same for you remember how it was God's grace and his mercy that made you a Christian remember how it was grace that brought peace with you and God remember these things so this is all to set them up for the precious things that Paul is going to unpack. The amazing news of the gospel message and how it makes the spiritually poor rich and gives hope and meaning in such a way as to never be forgotten. The challenge of any leader in the church is to encourage their people to grow. Paul here is inviting our church as we read the book of Ephesians to grow in Christ. And so we're we'll going to be launching into this book in, in the next 28 weeks. And I want you guys to come hungry every week. I want you guys to come expectant every week. We need to dig deep in our knowledge of Him. We need to use the riches that He gives us wisely. Now we can remain spiritually stingy if you want. Remain spiritually stingy not knowing how to use your resources that you have in Christ. Or instead, a much better option, you can seek this never-ending world of blessings that God is going to give you. And those are your choices in the next 28 weeks. You can seek what God provides, or you can remain spiritually stingy. And so I'm just going to encourage you as you read this letter, read ahead, uh, mark it in your diary. Uh, your phone, like whatever you use to put it, take notes, ask questions, write those questions down, bring them to church with you about the text, speak to whoever is speaking up the front, because God has so much to give you over the next 20 weeks, 28 weeks. And my encouragement to you as this brief overview is let's go get it. Let's go get everything that God has for us. I want to pray. Father, we are excited to explore the letter of Ephesians. Lord, would you just encourage us to uh, dig deep? Lord, would we put energy in? Would we uh, actively be faithful in you? Would we not be stingy with the resources you give us, Lord, but be generous? Would we give of all the knowledge we have and would we give that to others? Would we be seeking to disciple? Would we be seeking all the riches of the scriptures, but in particular, the letter to Ephesians in the next 28 weeks? Would you reawaken deadness? Would you breathe life into people that have fallen into valleys and have been struggling in their faith? Would you reawaken dead people who do not believe in you, Lord? And would you bring people to this message, Lord, who desperately need it? Would you encourage us as we wage war against the devil? And would you help us to wear all the armor of God and build everything that you give us? pray these things in Jesus' name.